and welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. With me today is Rusty Wiley, who's President and Chief Executive Officer at Datasite. Rusty's a very special guest. I'm very interested in looking forward to today's call, uh, today's conversation. Uh, without further ado, Rusty, welcome to the show. All right, Adam, thank you. It's great to be on the show. I always like to ask, Rusty, can you begin by telling us a little about yourself and the company? Yeah, I'll do a little on me and more about my favorite topic, which would be the company. So, um, I've been at DataSite about eight years now as CEO. Um, prior to that, I spent most of my professional career at IBM, um, holding jobs, running the uh, consulting business for financial services, and then later uh, out of China, running the global banking and capital markets business for, um, for IBM. And I was looking to make a change to a better climate, having lived in the Northeast for most of my career. And so I took over a company based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So anyway, yeah, eight years ago, I joined DataSite. It's been fantastic. <laughs> it's been a great ride. And you can imagine the job I did selling that on the home front where we're not moving to the Southeast. We're actually going to move to Minnesota. Uh, there's two seasons in Florida. I always joke around where I live. There's hot and there's hotter. And yep. in Minnesota, you've got cold and colder with this frequency some, some cold and colder. Yeah. I think one of my first days there, it was minus 20 degrees. And that's uh, ambient, not uh, oh, wind. So yeah, ouch. cold chilly. Ouch. So um, the company, tell us a little about DataSite if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. so, so DataSite is um, really a leader in SaaS technology in the M&A world. Um, we, do, uh, we provide for professionals like bankers, lawyers, accountants, corporates, corp dev, uh, the tools and the technology platform that enable them to do deals. So if you think about it, you know, typically there are about 45 to 50,000 deals that are announced publicly as transactions. Mm -hmm. um, there's a much broader universe of deals that we know are private, non-public deals, but we do about, you know, last year we did 13,000 deals. So we are a substantial portion of the volume of the overall deal market. And what kind of makes us unique is um, we're there when the deals are happening. So you will use the data site platform at the moment you begin thinking about and organizing and working with your banker or given the mandate of doing a deal you start on data site. So we're right there at the beginning of deals. So we kind of have, you know, sort of a six to nine month view of what's happening in the markets in terms of, you know, deal flow across different industries. Interesting. So what do you see yeah. now? Uh, very strong, very right. strong deal markets. I mean, we, we looked, uh, in fact, I took another glance uh, at last year this morning before you and I chatted and uh, the deal volume was up over 30% last year. Um, oh, wow. The momentum continues and it's really, you know, I, I will state things that are pretty pretty obvious to people who are in the business, but uh, you know, uh, rates on 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 money are still artificially low versus history. So the cost right. of capital is pretty cheap. Right. There's abundance of deals uh, to be done, and there's lots of cash effectively chasing and trying to be put to work. You know, looking for yield beyond what you see today in fixed income. So we see the deal market, right, as being a um, uh, a continuing strong force in terms of the economics of 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 the U.S. and globally, in fact. Interesting. So let's talk about data site again, just to make sure we understand properly what, what you're saying. So let's say I work at a private equity shop and I'm looking to buy a company. You yep. said you do both public and private deals. Is that correct? So it doesn't matter the size. Is there a size capacity? Uh, any size capacity, but typically we'll see deals that have something like $100 million in economic value. And up. Okay. Uh, so typically the sweet spot for, for the deals that we do. And with what did we do last year globally? Five trillion in deals. So there's a high volume of deals that meet that threshold. 
Understood. So then some, I have a deal. I want to find a company. I find company A. I want to buy it. So I'm going to go on data site, start once I identify the company yeah. that is go on data site. And then basically, can you walk us through the journey? Yeah. That yeah let me, and let me flip it if I can, because it might be easier to follow it sort of from a seller's point of view. So let's go from the standpoint of I'm now a company. I may be a private equity owned. I, I, I could be a strategic asset in a, in a company. I want to effectively sell that asset. So how that would work is you would reach out to likely a banker uh, to execute the sell side of the transaction. Mm -hmm. and, and when that begins, and typically even before that, you would engage data site and you'd stand up a data site project as we call it. Because some of these, you know, some of the prep work and content for doing a deal, particularly now with things like ESG and COVID, uh, the amount of content you have to organize to sell a company or to sell an asset is pretty significant. It's right? a lot, yeah. So you would work with DataSite immediately. We have a product called DataSite Prepare. And what Prepare is, is an advanced AI-based tool that, you know, to make it simple, can read thousands of documents in seconds, mm. tell you what those documents are, tell you how you should organize them, and put them in an index that you'll ultimately use for sharing the content about that company, right? Yeah. So you've now used AI Prepare you've now organized what could be thousands of documents in this company that you want to sell. Then the next stage is typically you want to reach out to potential buyers, right? right? And so we've created a product. I'm sorry, this feels very product centric, but it helps me walk through kind of- what No, go doing. for it. Yeah, this is very we helpful. We have a product called Datasite Outreach um, that we launched last year. One of three products we last launched during the uh, pandemic year um, that allows you to reach out to, it could be a dozen buyers. It could be 500 potential buyers and they could be private equity buyers. Um, you know, they could be corporate buyers. So it essentially is how you make that initial reach out and you share a teaser about your company, right. And you figure out who's interested in seeing more about the company. And we use the outreach product to walk through every stage of that from sending a teaser to getting the NDAs in place to actually sharing the SIM for the company, which is the more, more robust content all the way through managing um, to getting uh, to the bids for the company. And then supporting that is uh, the data site diligence product. And what diligence is, is it is the, you know, highly secure platform that you can control access for, you know, dozens or hundreds of users to that sensitive content that's part of the deal, part of the company you're selling. So financial information, KPIs, HR information, contractual information, all of that that you need to be able to do diligence on gets done on our platform. And in that platform, you can redact content as an example, because you might not want certain content to be available to certain people that are accessing right. the information of your company. Right. We have an advanced Q&A capability that allows you to do streams of Q&A with the participants in the process. Mm -hmm. So now I can uh, flip it to be the buyer. We have a product called Acquire that marries and works well with diligence. That is the buyer's version. So that private equity firm wants to go through and they'll have, you know, half a dozen to a dozen work streams from financial diligence to ESG diligence to, you know, HR diligence to legal diligence to all the things you have to go through to figure out what you think the right value is for the company. Right. And, and today, post-COVID, there's also an enormous amount of energy being trying to assess what is the post-transaction value? Because COVID materially affected the values of companies, particularly companies that are tied to supply chains without going deeply into that. Right. And ESG presents opportunities and risks for companies that don't have really tight ESG programs within that enterprise or might have climate exposure, right? So those data rooms, as we call them, are, are expansive and that diligence work is pretty detailed. So Acquire 
allows you to work all of those streams, allows you to do Q&A, and then you ultimately get to the point where we're ready to close on the transaction. Um, and we support that as well when you're going through. So it is, it's an end-to-end -end deal platform that you can bring in buyers, you can bring in sellers, you can bring in advisors from the very beginning all the way through closing the transaction is what we think of when we talk about the data site platform. Well, I love that. Thank you for that explanation. I have a lot of uh, a large audience of private equity investors that may have been on the show, but also listen to the show. And I'm, I've been involved with private deals before with the M&A space. Yeah. This is a place that's close to my heart because I have actual experience in it. And I'm always, you know, looking for new deals and I just, it's part of my world. So I love that. What are the, some of the big things, uh, Russ, do you see with respect that are, or just are impacting the M&A market? Yeah, I think a couple of things. One of them is uh, adoption technology. Um, one of the things we saw, because we like a lot of companies went from in, you know, a thousand people in our offices to everybody being remote in a matter of 30 days. And one of the things we saw at the, at the onset of the pandemic that has persisted through the pandemic is a different work style, right? A lot less travel, as an example, a lot of what we're doing today, which is, you know, video conversations versus in-person conversations. But beneath that, we've seen adoption of new technologies um, uh, occur much more rapidly than we would have seen in the past. So I talked about the product Prepare that we launched right around the pandemic uh, beginning. We were, we, were, we were one of those rare companies that innovated and launched three, three new products in the middle of a pandemic and changed our brand and data site. Right. But we launched some products um, like Prepare, like Outreach, like Acquire that use tech, use AI, to really automate, if you will, and speed the process of doing deals, right? So just a data point, I went and looked today, of the 13,000 deals we did last year, 4,500 of those deals are now using new automation and AI technology to do deals. And that was zero the year before. So wow. you know, fully wow. more than a third of the deals are now using advanced technology. I think the other thing that we're seeing, which is, uh, which is really interesting to watch is, we track the duration of a deal. Right. So from the time you open our project on data site to the point where you close the project on data site. And for, I don't know, for seven years, that's been about 10 to 11 months, 10 and a half to 11 months. And it stayed pretty consistent. So with the new work change in terms of remote work, um, accompanied by some of the advanced technology we've talked about today in terms of facilitating getting deals done faster. Right. You're seeing deals go now to nine, nine and a half months. So 10 wow. to 15 percent reduction in the cycle time of what it takes to get a deal done. Now, you could say there's the abundance of cash and cheap, you know, cheap lending affects that, which is true, but as evidenced by the percentage of deals using AI and tech today to speed deals, we think that's a fundamental change in the way deals are getting done, allowing firms to do more deals, right, than they could previously do before. And with a lot of the constraints in terms of the ability to add headcount in the deal-making community, it's a real plus to be able to, to work deals uh, more rapidly with more automation. So that's kind of the first. I think the other is, uh, frankly, you know, Adam, the, the, the data rooms are getting very, very large. Yeah. Right? We've seen the average deal size now going up for multiple years in a row at 20 to 30% a year in terms of the size of the data rooms. Some of that you can attribute to just more sophisticated diligence. Right. People are getting smarter. They're better at doing diligence. Some of the new tools create more content. So if I've got redacted versions versus not redacted versions, they get bigger. But a big chunk of it is just the, the, new, um, the new categories of ESG, as well as what we see in terms of a broader post-COVID diligence on companies, right? So we did a survey of 400 deal professionals. You have a copy of that, you have the data, and I'm not gonna quote a whole bunch of percentages in that. But one of them was really interesting to me when I read it that um, um, 
about two thirds of the 400 deal makers said that ESG could be one of the biggest deal killers oh, wow. anything, um, in the marketplace, right? Wow. And, they, and they included in that, by the way, like you would think, the impacts of things like climate change on supply chains, but it's also things about social, uh, social and governance that impact the value of companies post-transaction. So what we're seeing is, you know, um, those items continue to increase the size and complexity of data rooms because when you get to the, as, as we said earlier, to the close of the transaction, you want some surety in terms of what that three or five year model looks like as an investor to make right. sure you're not going to have a surprise on the downside with what you've chosen, you know, to pursue or acquire. So I think automation and AI, and I think the size of the rooms and the quality of diligence are the things that I'm seeing to be the most, uh, most different over the course of the last two years. Well, I love that. And it kind of it's a perfect segue into my next question. I was going to ask you, what role does ESG play in the M&A space? Yeah, it's interesting because, and again, quotes in this will tell you that about 95% of those surveyed said it's moved to the top of the priority list in terms of how companies prepare mm -hmm. for the sale and, and obviously the diligence. So it's gone from something that you would say, certainly corporate governance has been part of doing diligence for, for quite a while, right? If right. you don't have good corporate governance and good financial governance, you know, you're going to struggle to be able to transact with a buyer or even to do diligence with multiple buyers. So that's always been, it's been strengthened, it's been automated. But really, I think what is what is very new is companies have prioritized to the top of the list that we have not only to give lip service to ESG, but it's got to be real. You have to have leadership, you have right. to have real programs, you have to have real KPIs, you have to be able to produce the content rapidly that mitigates what a buyer might see in terms of the risk of buying your asset, right? So all of that is very, very new. And it's not just limited to climate change. It's climate change. It's also the full full social and governance aspects of ESG as well. Interesting. So and, and as a CEO, by the way, yeah, I, I, we're in the middle of it, you know, in terms of having leadership in data site, in terms of building in our programs. I mean, our footprint from a carbon perspective is fairly small because we're a tech company. Yeah. Right. But, but ESG is certainly not limited to that. So it's at the forefront of what we do with our owners today as well. And in fact, if you look at my monthly CEO top sheet that you can either celebrate or you get um, <laughs> you get inspected every month. You right. know, mine, uh, one of our core components of that is ESG for the company. Got it. No, I love that. So, OK, Rusty, if you thought you brought up a lot of really good points here. So somebody's into the M&A space, whether they're new or they're seasoned or they're professional, they can use data site from A to Z. It's a fantastic uh, SaaS based tool, which is fantastic. Let's talk about some of the mistakes you see people make with respect to buyers or as buying, excuse me, acquisitions and or mergers. And how do you avoid them? Yeah, I, I think probably the, the greatest mistake that we see um, and some of it is created by the energy in the market right now and the active pursuit of assets. So everybody right now will tell you, most companies will tell you if they're at or near a point in their cycle mm -hmm. with their owners of doing a transaction, they're trying to get to market. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward yeah. with the amount of cash pursuing assets and artificially low interest rates. It is a really uh, fertile time to do deals. Having said that, what we see tends to be, um, I hate to use the word rush, Adam, yeah. but the level of preparedness, even before you engage the sell side banker with the mandate in terms of your content mm -hmm. is sometimes not robust enough. Sometimes you haven't gotten the financial content as organized as it should be. Sometimes right. your KPIs and the duration of KPIs you track is, is not sufficient for going through a sale process. We commented earlier about sometimes you're kind of flat on your feet other than a couple of PowerPoint charts about ESG. So it, it, it really is you know, um, 
it really is getting ready before you launch your deal. And, and the sell side bankers and advisors are tremendous at helping you do that. But the prep work before you get to that banker is super important. I think the other is inefficiency in, in deal making. And, and I break that into kind of two categories. I, I break it into one of um, companies are pretty busy. Not many of us have a lot of cycles lying around that we just are looking to apply. And a lot of times, if you're not really smart about the targeting, I talked about our outreach product. One of the things in outreach that our users can do is kind of get better insight in terms of what buyers might be the best buyers for a particular asset. Right. What, are, what are they looking for? What are they interested in based on data? So I think one of the things that is, is not sometimes great is that the inefficiency of reaching out to buyers who are not the right buyers or don't intend to transact because every one of those buyers you engage with takes cycle from the leadership and from the functional leaders of a business. So right. there's just inefficiency there in terms of how you spend time with buyers. And then I think, you know, absent the right technology, things I talked about like Q&A, things like, you know, redaction, things on the platform that really allow you to speed answers to questions, right? Yeah. buyers doing diligence, right? Right. Shorten the cycle time. So what I see is there are a lot of, uh, this is a, this is a, a clearly a play for data side, but there are a lot of platforms that don't have the level of sophistication to conduct rapid diligence with a lot of buyers. Understood. Across a complex set of topics. Yeah, right? that's true. That's very so I think true. It is all of those things, you know, being prepared, you know, ahead of engaging, you know, getting to the right buyers and then having a platform that allows you to rapidly do diligence. And that, by the way, is as a seller of an asset. And to yeah. my point, Northern requires that as a buyer of an asset. Right. Those are the things that I see, you know, tend to delay deals. Um, and again, I hate to make the point again, but ESG is clearly one that of late has yeah. surfaced. And I know of some specific examples yeah. where it was sort of a lightweight PowerPoint and the buyers were looking for a lot more depth. And it, <laughs> I've seen and that like, too. I get pitched a lot. So I, I've seen that too. It's like, what do you do? Just delay the deal, right? So, 100%. Yeah. Okay. So on the other side, those are mistakes. What about some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah. I mean, specific to deal making or to companies? Or? Wherever you want to go with it, Rusty. You could be all over the board. Personal, I, I, professional, m and yeah, I can talk about uh, deal making and data site. You know, we could spend the afternoon on this, but but we won't. I would say, um, really, in terms of the company, I said I came here eight years ago. I had a great passion for what we did and what we were able to create, and I and I think the the view of data site is it really gets simple, and everybody's got you know ideas about how do companies perform well, what makes companies successful, and and it's actually not that not that complicated. It's hard to do, but not that complicated to describe. And I think at data site, it's really three things. Um, one is we every day get up thinking about how to be essential to clients, right? Yes. If you begin with, and if you look at the way we do everything we do from our customer service experience, which we have, you know, record net promoter scores. Our net promoter scores are 76, Adam, to give you an example nice. of how nice. good our services team does. But if you get up every day and you organize the company around being essential to clients, what do you do for that client that allows them to be more productive, more effective, right? In our case, to do more deals, to do more deals rapidly, to do better deals. Right. You can orient the company in a way that it energizes the company. So you begin there. And the second is so straightforward and so hard right now, by the way, which is having the best, smartest, but engaged employees. You have to have employees that are passionate about what they do. And in data site, you know, every quarter we, we survey, we do a net promoter score for our employees. We call it an NPS. 
Mm -hmm. Pretty simple. You know, would you recommend the company you work for to your friends, your colleagues, your family? We even put family in there as part of the conversation. And we get consistently above 80 on that, which says our employees like the company. Right. They, they're passionate about what they do within the company right. to the point where they would recommend it. And then the last bit is, boy, even in the context of the pandemic and working remotely and building new communication structures and new ways to energize and collaborate, you better innovate or you better find a way to produce new functions, new products rapidly, or you will fall behind. And, you know, I commented earlier, you know, we put three groundbreaking technology products out in the middle of a pandemic. You could argue that might not be the best time to do it, but that's the culture of the company. Because we knew, by the way, during the pandemic, some of the things we were working on around automating organizing content, automating reaching out to buyers that weren't going to physically be in a room now, right? Mm -hmm. Those things are going to become really important and essential to a client. So innovating, you know, just makes it go. And I think the last bit is um, uh, grow. You know, don't work for a company that doesn't grow. If right. you're in a company and I worked in one for a decade that didn't grow, yeah. um, uh, it's not, not energizing. It's not right. fun, right? Yeah. So make sure you grow and, um, and keep a sense of humor. I told a story um, to my team and it's, uh, it's a quick one. So, um, Early in my career, kind of my first promotion at IBM, I went to work for a lady who was a phenomenal executive. Um, and I, you know, I was so excited. I'd gotten this new job. I was running a business inside of IBM in the sales organization. And I came in for my six-month review. And I'm going in going, you know, I, everything's great, right? I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm checking all the boxes. And uh, she said, have a seat. And she said, what happened to you? And I was like... <laughs> Okay. This is not what I thought I was going to be doing. Today. Right, I thought this right. was you telling me that I was really good at what I was doing. All right. And she said, you know, you're doing good stuff. You're doing the right stuff. Where's your sense of humor? The reason right. I promoted you is because I knew you could do the work. Right. But you got to maintain a sense of energy and sense of humor for the people that you lead and the people you work with, because some of these days get kind of long. Yeah. So the lesson I learned there is in addition to, you know, essential and the talented people being engaged and also being innovative and in, in terms of the company is, man, you got to figure out how to have fun with this stuff. hundred percent. Yeah. I, so, I, I, I think those would be the things I would say, because at this point, we all know um, employees are choosing where they want to go work in this industry today. Right. right? They, and they have an abundance of choices. We, we have to be that best choice if we want to continue to do what we do for our clients. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Rusty. I love that. Having fun is so critical to everything I do in my life. It's even with the kids or whatever it is, with, yeah. work, with the wife, with everything. It's just enjoy, just relax, take a breath, you know, and enjoy it. Um, I love it. Okay, so that those are the mistakes. Those are the lessons. Let's talk about some advice. What's the best piece of advice if you can go back to your 30-year-old self yeah. or, you know, that you'd like to share with the audience uh, from a, a business standpoint or personal standpoint or both? It doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, the personal standpoint is I'll, I'll say what everybody who, what everybody says, which is figure out how to strike a balance and everybody's got a different balance. Um, some might argue that the pandemic has created a new balance of how much time they spend with their family and their kids. And maybe they're looking to, to, to switch that a little bit as we now come out of the, uh, out of the pandemic and move into the endemic. So, you know, make sure you, you, you do that and you do it early. Don't wait for a time in your career where you feel like, by the way, if I get to the next level, then I'm going to spend time with my family. If I get to the next level, then I'm going to take the vacation that I've talked about taking. Don't, don't delay those things. Do it now. Look up in 15 or 20 years and you'll go, I delayed all that stuff. And I should have been doing it all along. Because by the way, doing those things and spending time reflecting and enjoying the company of friends and colleagues and, 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 and family really energizes you to be more creative. So one is don't delay. 
do those things, right? Do your job, but do those things. Don't delay them. Um, I'd go back to, you don't always do work, the work that you want to do. And this is something that I think is um, tough to explain is that the job that you're going to start with might not be the work you want to do. You might not want to be doing the particular role you have. That's fine. You're going to do some of those jobs. I've done plenty of them, Adam. You've done plenty of them over the years. Do, do things well that you might not like doing as long as you do them for a company or for a business or for a cause that you're passionate about, right? right. So, and, and again, I've talked about before things that companies that believe in being essential, companies that grow because growing companies create opportunity, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think do stuff sometimes it's not your favorite to do, do it well, but do it in the context of a company that you love to work for. And I think maybe the last piece of advice, and I, I clearly didn't give it to myself because I worked for IBM for you know a, a quarter of 25 years. Um, change. Don't change every three months or six months. But you know, if in fact, once you understand the environment they're operating in, and if you go back to that, is it energizing? Is it essential? Is it growth? Is it something you know that you agree with the purpose of that business? Because again, you have to have purpose and you have to tap have, that has to resonate. Give it time, give it sufficient time, right? But move, do yeah. different things. We're, we're in an operating environment now where um, it is very easy and in fact expected to change. And by the way, don't limit it to changing from a company in the exact industry that you are today doing exactly what you do today. Right. Create diversity in terms of your experiences because that diversity of industry and role and the diversity of people you work with will create a foundation that you'll use later in your career that will prepare you for things that you don't know you need to be prepared for until you get to them. So I think those are the things I would say, um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of balance work for companies with purpose. Sometimes do work you don't love for companies with purpose, but be willing to be flexible and change. Um, I love, and, I love and that. Keep that sense of humor, by the way, again. So it, I just published a new book. It's called psychological analysis and it's number one on uh, Amazon. And, yeah. Thank you very much. And in it, I talk about a lot of what you're sharing here, but I have a, we have, a, I guess, a similar um, frequency here on how we, an outlook, so to speak. How do you handle uh, losing or fear or rejection or just not being able to close that deal you want to close in, in general when you deal with your, your team or you deal with yourself and then wanting to win, but overcoming those inevitable obstacles that get in your way? How do you handle all that? Yeah. Um, boy, I, I would like to tell you that these things are easy. Um, you know, generally the way I've always focused on, on um, a, a failure or the fact that you didn't see it seen in a particular deal or a particular endeavor is everything you do, um, and sometimes it's more painful than pleasurable, is yeah. a lesson in terms of you're learning something, right? So what I, what I have always told the team is um, point number one, bad news doesn't get better with age, right? So make sure if something happened, Deal with it. Put it on the table. Let's yeah. understand it. Point two, um, what did you learn from it? And the answer is you didn't learn anything from it. You need to take another look at it because if you weren't successful, there was a reason for that. And right. by the way, not always external factors that are the reason that you weren't successful in that particular endeavor, a deal or a program or what have you. Yeah. And I think the other bit is um, you got a lot of arrows to shoot. Yeah. You, you have to be able to step back. And some of that is you have to have leaders who have enough breadth and experience that you can take people and you literally nurture people as they come up through the ranks. I, yeah. I joke about this, by the way. Somebody says, what, what's a great place to start in your organization? Well, two great places to start in our organization is in customer service and in inside sales, right? right. 
because both of them, you have a high degree of success and a high degree of failure, right? Right. right. So, so, so get very comfortable with that. You're going to take a lot of shots, yep. right? Right. And I'm not using the baseball 100%. analogy because everybody uses the baseball analogy, yeah. but, but accept the fact that they're going to fail, expose them, learn from them and fire the next shot as quickly as you can and, and shoot better the next time based on what you learn. Again, I, you, you know it as well as I know. There, it, it's not magical. This stuff is it's basic, but it's really hard yeah. in the context of how fast and how hard we're running every day to do, yeah. to do the basic stuff. But that's the way I've always thought about it in terms of developing leaders. You know, Rusty, that's really powerful because in, in the book, I actually say it's simple, but it's not easy. So if you look yeah. at losing weight, for example, because we can all relate to that, it's calories in versus calories out. Simple in theory, but most people are overweight because it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> so same thing with winning or being successful. I, I, this is really, really, really um, enjoyable for me. So final question I have for you today, Rusty, is leadership. Let's talk about that. What makes a good leader, in your opinion? Um, I think leaders have an enormous amount of responsibility to set vision and direction. Um, I, I, I think probably the one thing that separates a great leader from an average leader is um, all executives or senior people are pretty capable of executing. Right, that you didn't get to a position of being a leader if you couldn't demonstrate a track record that you couldn't line up a plan and execute a plan and produce a predictable result. Right. right. Um, what makes a great leader is someone who actually can inspire, mm. right? Design and articulate a purpose for the direction at whatever level you are in an organization. This is not a CEO comment. Right. This is whatever part of an organization that you're in. Right. Because I find that great leaders. Um, how do, I, how do I put this directly? If you have a vision and a direction you want to take your business and you're excited about it and you're energized about it, um, people will get excited about it. People will execute. People will follow. Um, if all you do as a leader is manage execution, I can guarantee you you're going to have an average business and you're going to have average growth. Right. Yeah. I think the other bit is really good leaders can set that vision, can set that direction, can energize people around where they're going and why they're going there. Yeah. can build the metrics, the KPIs, the management structure in to support that, can hire the right talent, right? Boy, change. Just yeah. look at it. And if you look at it on Monday, you might have looked at it last Monday and said, we're going there because I know we should go there. And you have to keep every every avenue of new information flowing. If the next Monday you go, that's not right, be willing to adapt, be willing to move, but always reset your team with we're moving from here to here, but reset them with the why. Right. not just that we're moving, right? Because if, if your team understands and is passionate about the direction, as you make course corrections and changes, if you lead with why, yeah. they're on board. But oh, yeah. if, you, if you make changes constantly, you know, you'll, you'll lose the core capability of your team. So I think, I, I think, I think vision and, and, and focus on being essential and, and compelling um, direction is the thing that's most missing in leaders. Right? Right. I think, I think we've got an entire um, country of effective executors. We got a little number of people who set direction. A hundred percent agree. Well, Rusty, this has been absolutely fantastic. What is the uh, best way or the website or the best way people get in touch with you? That were absolutely. The website is perfect. Datasite.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much and for I will, and I will and I will now read your book. By the way, for the oh, record, sure. I, had, I had not read it ahead. Okay. So the fact that you and I had similar thoughts was yeah. was not was not planned. Nope. So, uh, so well done, by the way. Congratulations. It's great to catch up with you, Adam. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have, have you on again soon. Yeah. Bye for now. All right.